I read a journal article recently in which the author argued convincingly that successful free market businesses are always pretty good businesses, never perfect businesses. Businesses that strive for perfection, he insisted, invariably fail. Businesses that learn to live with imperfection and handle messes effectively survive. The local church is, of course, not a business. We are a family. However, there's good reason for applying this principle, I think, to the life of local churches. A church that strives for perfection in ministry and church members who harbor idealistic expectations are headed for disaster. And they really are out of touch with God's sanctifying purposes. For God has a purpose to show us disillusionment in one another's company. This truth is put so well in the book Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who contends that earnest Christians invariably construct in their imaginations idealistic expectations of what a Christian community should be, and God graciously shatters those dreams He writes, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world, Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects responded to biblically by a local church We're reminded here, local churches, that lust for perfection fail. Local churches whose idealistic dreams and expectations are shattered by reality have the opportunity to learn what it means to live together in a healthy, functioning community of sinners saved by grace. And that is precisely what we find as we come to the sixth chapter of Acts. We witness the infant church of Jesus Christ running headlong into the messy experience of disillusionment as a body. Acts chapter 6. How the Jerusalem church will handle this affair serves as a classic case of healthy functionality in a messy world of a church becoming a pretty good church. Think of Acts chapters 2 through 5. They've been some pretty heady texts, haven't they? The infant church has enjoyed unmitigated success. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit drawing without any advertisement outside of what God has done. A great crowd of people. And 3,000 people come to Christ as Savior. There is the continued explosive growth of thousands of people trusting the Lord. There are miraculous powers that are demonstrated by the apostles, people being healed and coming from the region all around to receive healing. 
Even the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira, that certainly was an ugly situation. But think of how God dealt with this matter decisively, directly. There is sin in the camp. It's dealt with immediately. At this point in time, it would seem that God's powerful presence is so real and so functional in this church that people might begin to look for, indeed, perfection. As we enter chapter 6, some believe five years removed from the baptism in Acts 2, we face the first case of communal disillusionment. It strikes this infant church hard. And how the Jerusalem church responds is crucial to its continued health and success and serves to instruct us in the business of striving to be a pretty good church of sinners, saved by grace. The disillusionment besets the church here in verse 1. We read of it now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists within the church, the context will bear out, arose against the Hebrews within the church because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now there's a pretty long bridge between us and this passage, and we have to come to terms with its cultural setting. We won't labor too long, but I think some of this needs to be done. At this early stage, the infant church was comprised of believers from two distinct cultural backgrounds. There were the Hellenists. In language, they spoke the Greek language. Many of them had lived outside of Israel in what's referred to as the diaspora, the Greeks that were spread out from Jerusalem and from Israel, many of them would have been born and grown up there speaking the Greek language and adopting much of the Greco-Roman culture. We don't know about every one of these widows, but what was very common was that people would then move back to Jerusalem to die and to be buried. And so you have individuals coming back to Jerusalem and probably some of them outliving their own means to support themselves, Judea being a very difficult place to make a living, and perhaps some of their wives outliving the support that they would have brought with them when they came back to these uh, Jewish people to, to die and be buried. But they come with a very different cultural orientation, these Hellenists, the Hebrews, an Aramaic-speaking language related to Hebrew, and they're proud of their adherence to the traditional Jewish culture. Now, just looking at the broader culture around, 10 to 20% of Jerusalem, they believe, would have been Hellenists. They were viewed very widely by the Hebrew Jews as second-class citizens. They were held in suspicion. You were born somewhere else. You came in at this last stage of your life. Why are you here now? You have adopted Greco-Roman culture to a degree that makes us uncomfortable. They weren't all the Jew that the Jews wanted them to be. And there was this cultural distinction between the two. Now a complaint rises among the minority group, we would assume, the Hellenists. The Greek word indicates, this word that's translated here in verse 1, complaint, that it was a grumbling response that is, these Hellenist members of the Jerusalem church had grown disillusioned. And they expressed their frustration in murmuring complaint, the word can be translated. 
There was a problem with the ministry of the church, and they were not happy about it. Now think of what they've experienced here. It doesn't matter that the apostles are there. It doesn't matter that miracles are being worked. It doesn't matter that thousands of people are coming to Christ as Savior. It doesn't matter that the apostles indeed have withstood persecution and, and the dynamic that that would bring to a church and the enthusiasm there that we are standing for Christ identifying with a crucified Savior against all this hostility, all of that. This problem was big enough for them to begin to murmur and to complain. The issue, of course, is with their widows. It's likely many of these widows had, as I mentioned, run out of their support. And perhaps even the authorities, which did, in accordance with the Old Covenant, practice a system of almsgiving where they would go around to widows' homes and give them daily provision of food, occasionally clothing, occasionally money. They weren't installing uh, direct TV or anything like that. This is just barely living, just staying alive, sustaining them day by day. But it's very possible that the authorities had ceased to provide for Christian widows. All that we know is that the church has taken up that responsibility very directly. So, food, possibly at times clothing and money, was being distributed to these widows who had no possible way of living outside of the support. And within the church, there were some saying, the Hellenists particularly, you know, as we look at this, our widows aren't getting the same treatment that the Hebrew widows are getting. And it concerned them, and they began to grumble about it. Well, how will the apostles respond here? This is really a crucial moment in the life of this church. Will they be disillusioned by the criticism and respond with grumbling of their own? Think of Acts 2 through 5 and put together what the apostles might say to these people. The great success of this church, they're standing even in the face of persecution. And you come to us with this little problem? Think of the disillusionment they might have expressed. Will they respond with their own grumbling? But rather than lashing out, what we find, they are not going to dismiss these grumblers. The apostles rather move to positively address the problem. What we will witness is disillusionment serving as the impetus for positive change. So the disillusionment strikes in verse 1. This problem arises, this complaint, murmuring, or grumbling. And a solution is positively proposed in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now we notice that the apostles take decisive leadership. They propose an innovative solution. We're not sure why. There was some expectation that they would be doing this work. Otherwise, their answer really makes no sense. We don't really know what's behind that, but they come up with a plan. We don't know why it's seven. There's some cultural indications that that would have been very clearly the way most situations would work itself out. But whatever the reason, they decide that it should be seven men who need to solve this problem, perhaps one for each day to take leadership of that day. We don't know. But we don't see here a free-for-all. Let's gather the assembly together, and who has an idea about how to fix this problem? It would have been bedlam, and it would not have worked. 
that they take decisive leadership to say, here's what we propose as a solution. But notice then they involve the church in answering this problem. But I think what is of greatest importance is not simply how the church and the assembly work together. That's a vital lesson. But notice what they see as the problem. Notice how they define the problem. Not, we have a major problem here that could lead to a rift between these two groups of people. But rather, they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. That's what the problem is. And that is the problem that they will address. They cannot administrate these tables and faithfully preach the Word. And you'll notice there, it says that it's not right. The Greek word is not indicating here morally wrong, that it would be morally wrong for them to take meals to widows, that it would be morally wrong for them to oversee this matter necessarily. But the word could be translated, it's not pleasing, it's not fitting, it's not proper, it's not desirable. They were overseeing the problem at hand. But they were not overseeing that problem by jumping in and doing the work themselves. They were saying we must look at this problem and solve it in a different direction so that we are not pulled away from what is priority in our calling. Now there's a crucial implication here, and that is feeding these poor widows was noble work. They were keeping them alive. This was something good to do. They do not dismiss it as an unworthy project. We're all about preaching the Word of God, and we wouldn't get involved in someone's life like that. That's not their answer. This is noble work, but it came laced with a temptation for the church's leadership. And so the solution is, choose out, assembly, seven men who can administrate this issue, can take care of it. They also turn then to the church to cooperate in the solution What kind of man is fitted to administrate the distribution of goods to widows? Well, it's not simply a strong man or a good businessman. But what is it? It's men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. It's interesting. This is where we learn, again, this is not a business. This is a family. It's a spiritual family, and it's men full of the Spirit and wisdom. That is, and the word Spirit is not, does not have the article, does not say the Holy Spirit, which some would take then to be not a reference to the Holy Spirit, though the distinction is so minor. Of course, it's the filling of the Holy Spirit that makes one spiritual. But I think the point is here, these are men of spirit. They are spiritual people. These are not super spiritual elite in the church. These are simply believers who are walking in fellowship with God. They are filled with the Spirit of God. That is, they have spirit. They are spiritual people who have wisdom, skill in living. So once these seven men have been selected by the assembly, the apostles will then approve them and appoint them to the task. Now let's just note for a minute here the interaction between assembly and leadership. We have integral teamwork that takes place here. First of all, from the assembly comes a complaint. Something's not being done well and needs to be addressed. The leadership then initiates a solution. The assembly responds to that solution and gets involved in bringing it about, and the leadership serves as a final check, and then these men are released to their work. Now, I don't think what we have here is strict precedent, that we need to follow this exact pattern. 
in our dealing with problems as a church. But a pattern of cooperative effort between leadership and assembly is presented. Both have their place to play. Both are treated with dignity and respect. Both carry out a very significant mission in this all. This is not a dictatorship. The apostles do not go about this. We can look at Acts 15 as well. They don't go about it by saying, here's the answer. You either need to live with it or leave it. But they suggest a solution. The church works to bring it about. Nor do we have here an assembly that's dictating to the apostles what they will do as leaders. But rather, leaders and the assembly together working actively, cooperating for a solution. A crucial aspect of the apostles' response then comes in verse 4, and we need to sit on it and to consider it carefully. But we, they say, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Seven good men should be appointed to minister to these widows so that, so that we are free to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This word devote is a strong word. It can be translated to be busily engaged in or to persevere in. And think of it. These men have been trained by Jesus Christ. They know the Word of God. With all that training, they had to continually and diligently study God's Word as a discipline of life. You see, there is no shortcut for a pastor's persistent saturation in God's Word and prayer. No preacher will faithfully fill the pulpit over an extended period of time unless he diligently fills his mind with the study of God's Word and pours out his soul in earnest prayer to God. No one. When we see Jesus stooped over the dirty feet of his disciples, we know that no act of service on this planet is below the dignity of a pastor. Pastors should wipe up vomit. They should clean toilets. They should put chairs away and clean up the floor and scoop snow. There's nothing that is below their dignity. If Jesus will wash the dirty feet of complaining disciples... Nothing is below the dignity of a pastor. But having said that, a pastor is called by God to know his Bible, to minister God's truth to people, and to labor in prayer with God. This is the calling that passes on from these apostles. If this was necessary for the apostles, how necessary is it for the leadership, the eldership of a church? A pastor must not permit the ministry of the church to distract him from the divine calling to know the Word and to pray. And I think there's really only one way for this to happen, Eden Baptist Church. There's only one way that we're going to bring it about. And that is for our church to get that picture and to embrace it as God's gift to the church. Some might read this phrase, say they're going to give themselves to reading books and praying in private where no one can see them. That sounds to me like a calling to a very cushy life. 
It's not even as hard as golfing. We have to be much larger than that, don't we? I've had people ask me, this is always a joke among pastors, but people do ask at the door, so is this your full-time job? What, what do you do the rest of the week? I mean, people wonder this. And when you say you're praying behind a closed door and you're reading books about the Bible and the Bible, I mean, that just sounds like vacation to a lot of people. But we have to understand, of course, that to know the Word of God is a lifelong, daily discipline that involves tremendous rigor. And to pray, to become a man of prayer in this culture, is virtually impossible. It is a discipline that must be honored and pursued with all diligence. And so a church that I think comes to embrace this vision of what Christ has for his church says, no, that's important. To give our leadership the ability to spend time in God's word and to know it and to pray and to meet with God is the most important thing they could do. We embrace that vision and we encourage it. Now, wouldn't that be hypothetical if it wasn't matched, secondly, with a willingness to do something about it? And that means to pick up the works of service that Paul refers to in Ephesians 4 that we read earlier. Christ gives gifts to his church, leadership gifts, that people may be equipped to do the works of service. A church that has the sense that we must hire people to do all of the ministry is a church that is not thinking biblically. And again, the objection here is, well, this just this isn't democratic. It's, it's not right for somebody to spend their time studying Scripture and praying and ministering, of course, that word to people on individual basis in small groups and in the assembly. But it's, just, it's, it's a call to a life of ease. Well, again... I hope I've indicated, and I think we understand as a church, that is a ridiculous idea, that it's a call to a life of ease. Minister the Word of God in a fallen world, you'll realize it's not an easy task. To stay on track with the knowledge of Scripture and prayer is not easy work. But having said that, what about this objection? That this gives to a pastor, to eldership in a church, a privileged position. Well, I would say in response, the thing that came to mind was when I'm on an airplane, I'm really not wanting the most important job as I enter onto that airplane. There's somebody who is schooled and prepared and called upon to take the task of flying that airplane. And I'm really pretty glad it's not me, and I'm very glad that this person has done their work to fly this plane. Now, I may need to minister to a dying passenger. And I may need to lead an assault on some hijackers. And I may need to follow some responsibility there of putting luggage away. And I am called to share the gospel with those that are near me, to seek opportunities to do that. But I don't want to fly the plane. The pilot has to focus on the most important job. Indeed, witness itself isn't going to happen if the pilot doesn't fly the plane and bring it home. 
And in like manner, there are people that God chooses to do what we might call the most important work of the church, of teaching and preaching God's word in the assembly and having a life that permits them to spend lengthy seasons in prayer. We should not respond to that and say that this is a calling to a life of ease. I don't think that was in the apostles' minds as their bodies bear at this moment the marks of their stand for Christ and as their daily schedule calls them to the diligence of the study of God's word and prayer. But it should also not be responded to in the church by apathy. We're very happy to allow the shepherds of the church to do their work. No, it should be responded to by a desire to pick up the work to which God has called us. Ephesians 4 makes this very clear, that we are all called to works of service, to bear the load of the body of Christ and to carry on the function that God has for us individually. And I wonder how God looks down upon this church and assesses this assembly along these lines. For me, it's not brand new, but certainly in the study of this passage again, there is the conviction that I need to learn to let go of more ministry responsibilities. It's a conviction of mine as I hear this. I'm I'm so given to doing everything and to show that nothing is below me in my understanding. It is a great temptation to get too involved in ministry into the things that other people can do. I need your help to do better at spending more time in the study of the Word and prayer. That leads to the other side of the relationship, and that is on your side. What are you doing to bear the weight of ministry so that the cause of Christ can be in the maximum way aided? And how is it aided? I'm not going to get any better theory than what the apostles lay out here. We will give ourselves, devote ourselves, persist in the ministry of the Word and prayer. That's what's right for a church. That's what's best for a church. It will not happen unless a church responds by taking up responsibility and work. It is a call for all of us to step forward and to assume the responsibility that God gives to us What is that in the airplane of the church? What has God called you to do? What a foolish airplane ride it would be to sit around wishing I was the pilot. I'd do that every once in a while. It would sure be fun, wouldn't it? But how foolish to pass up all the responsibilities that I have as a passenger, always wishing I was flying the plane. And let me say from one who in this analogy flies the plane... It's not a call to a life of ease. But it is a call for all of us to work together to see that God's church is benefited in the maximum way, that it functions the way Jesus wants it to function. And I would suggest then a goal that we might have is to realize in this year, 2009, that there is no small task among us. It takes an army of workers to take care of the physical needs and the spiritual needs in the church, the body of Christ. And may the goal be for every attender to become a member and for every member to be directly, consciously contributing to the ministry of the church. And I would call upon you, those who might get lost in the shuffle at times, saying that the work that I do is so small and so insignificant, there isn't such a job in the church of Jesus Christ. 
we serve a Savior who washed feet. There's no small job in the church of Christ. All of it contributing together as an army of workers to provide what Christ wants done in this world. There is no leader on the planet that can do that for a whole church. There's no group of elders, there's no shepherds, there's no deacons, there is no group that can do this for everyone. We must all be seeking to do what God would have us to do. Picking up any load and carrying it is part of that process. Are you in the game? Are you fulfilling your call from God? Well, the solution is suggested. It is a good one. The church responds gladly as we see in verse 5, where the solution is applied in these next two verses. Verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Why does it please them? Because they're on the page with Christ. They're spirit-filled, and they realize the importance of the ministry of the Word and prayer. They realize as well the importance of helping these women. So it pleases the whole gathering, and they chose, according to the Apostles' guidance, Stephen, some foreshadowing to chapter 7, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, more foreshadowing, chapter 8, and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, that is, he was apparently a Gentile who came to the Jewish faith before he trusted Christ as Savior. All of these Greek names, very likely Hellenists, there were some Hebrews that had Greek names, but probably all Hellenists, chosen for this task of meeting the needs of these widows. And we stop here just to pause. Were these men deacons? I'd answer it this way, not as an official office, because it doesn't exist yet. It does exist when we come to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. When we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, there is an official office of deacon. The diaconate, the official servant leaders of the church. But at this point, we have here really just the meeting of a specific need. It does give us, though, that principle of seeing ministry happen naturally within the congregation and then a formalizing of those ministries with leadership and with direction and oversight. That's what we see taking place here. The function of the deacon is inaugurated here and is foreshadowed here. The position will take a little while to evolve within the ancient church. But in verse 6, we find these then brought from the assembly before the apostles, and they, the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on these seven. The seven men assembled before them in something of a recognition ceremony, and the apostles placed their hands upon these seven to symbolize their support and perhaps to symbolically delegate to them authority to administrate the service to the Hellenistic widows in the assembly. It was now clear to all that these seven had the support of the apostles and had the support of the local church to carry on this very vital and necessary work. These weren't slouches. These were men filled with the Spirit and skillful ability to live life. Now verse 7 is a tricky verse because in some sense, we want to say that it is the result of the solution. 
what happens when the church works through this problem in a positive way, leading to a solution, the result being, verse 7, that I think it can be said that we must be cautious because this is a summary statement. There are several through the book, and it concludes, the next one will be found in chapter 9 and verse 31, but it says to us, it keeps us kind of on the track of the gospel expansion here in Jerusalem. As we move to 6, 8 and following, the gospel will expand beyond Jerusalem. So in the summary statement we read, which is something of a result of the church succeeding in this messy situation, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It is a reminder that the gates of hell cannot withstand the glorious assault of the gospel. Not only are more and more Jews being saved, even though the great Sanhedrin has said you will stop and not talk in his name anymore. Not only that, but even priests are following Jesus in great numbers. This is probably not the high priestly family that we've looked at in chapters 4 and 5. But this is probably the, what we're referred to as the ordinary priests. These are the Levitical priests some 20,000 of them in Israel at this time, they would do their work in their hometown. They would have their trades and would live life normally. Then they were assigned a two-week period where they would come to the temple and would serve there. And while they're filtering in and out of Jerusalem, these priests, there are many that are attaching themselves to the preaching and teaching of the apostles probably right here in the temple area, and some are responding in faith to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So many priests, just think of what God is doing. They're coming into Jerusalem and they're filtering out with the message of salvation. We don't know how long they would have stayed, those who responded, but likely somewhere in this process they are heading back home and sharing the message of Christ crucified and risen for the salvation of the lost. I'd like to believe, too, that perhaps the rending of the temple curtain separating the Holy of Holies on the day that Christ died had something to do with this as well. Is it true? It is true. Why did it happen? Well, here's what some people are saying. And priests are responding to the gospel of Christ. I don't think that these two concepts in verses 1 through 6 with verse 7 are at odds. I don't think verse 7 is just hanging there all on its own. To some degree, it is the church's solving of the problem, its internal strife, that allows it the health to go on and be a pretty good church. It's not a perfect church. It's a church made of sinners, and there is the experience of disillusionment because people are people. It's normal. But these problems between people can turn into absolute war and rebellion, or these problems can prove sanctifying if they are addressed biblically and honorably. And I think the apostles take the first step out of the gate to show us how that's done. Not to respond to disillusionment with disillusionment. Not to respond in kind, but to respond seeking a direct and meaningful, skillful solution. Their goal was not a perfect church. They didn't melt down about it and run off into the desert and say it's all over. We have some people here who don't get along with each other. That wasn't their idea. 
They realized they lived in a fallen world. They realized there would be messes. They realized there would be problems. The goal was to be a church that addresses these challenges positively, innovatively, by means of spiritually capable people. The goal was to always prioritize in the midst of all this the ministry of the word and prayer. And maybe we could press it to say that in some sense every challenge that comes to a church is to some degree a challenge about what matters most. What is going to be priority? Where is the focus going to be? Will it be the ministry of the word and prayer? And will a church continue to honor that principle? We see also in this passage the cooperative effort between leadership and assembly. As we've mentioned, leaders are called by God to lead. And no church is happy when they don't. They are called to initiate. They are called to devise solutions, especially when biblical principles are involved. And they see this very mundane matter that could have degenerated into a war of words as a spiritual matter. It was an issue about what mattered to the church of Jesus Christ. This assembly, then, was to be actively involved in the direction of the church, helping the apostles to carry the work forward. It was a cooperative effort. And out of this will come deacons, the heavy lifters in the physical ministry of the assembly, A noble task that is designed primarily to free up the elders for spiritual ministry. That will flow from this experience. And we find here as well and are reminded of the fact that we are all servants of Christ. That God has placed each one of us as members in this church to be fed and edified, certainly. But also to do the work of the ministry. To see the church as an active army of participants. This is not a rah-rah speech by a pastor. This is Jesus' wisdom to us in Ephesians 4, for instance, and displayed here in this passage. His desire is that every one of us would serve in some way to be the hands and the feet and the eyes of Jesus Christ, the ears of Christ, that we would hear and see and do and go in the name of Jesus. We're not all going to fly the airplane. We're not all going to be a stewardess. But we're all going to do something for the cause of Christ that lifts the weight that permits the most important things to be kept at the center of the church. May that be a goal for us this year, that every member would be in conscious, active participation to honor the centrality of the Word of God in the assembly. By whatever means, by whatever work God would give you to do, that we would see it that way. No job being below us, no job being too small, but everyone sensing, I am called by Christ to carry out the works of service that He has given to me to accomplish. And the hope will be, I mean, we will run into messes. We are not perfect people, and we are not oriented as a church to see ourselves as a perfect church. But as we respond to Christ to solve the problems that we run into, by God's grace, it will fit us 
to be a gospel-proclaiming church where the gospel is spread through us to a watching world. We have to maintain health not just for our own happiness. We need to maintain health for the gospel, for our approach to an unbelieving world. Unity as a body through trials as sinners has everything to do with our vacation Bible school and with our national night out outreach and with our witness on a daily basis and what we do as a church to reach this world for Christ. It has everything to do with that. Because we're not going to be functional if we don't biblically work through the messes that come in an imperfect world. And ultimately, is that not what the apostles are doing? They are responding in the authority and in the spirit of Jesus Christ who faced the ultimate disillusionment. Those that he created for his glory and for their joy became his enemies. Turned in sin against him and rebelled against God's ultimate and glorious purposes. But in his disillusionment, Jesus came to this earth and laid down his life in the ultimate solution. He bore the weight of our sin, sacrificed himself for his enemies. Why? That we might be reconciled to God. Is it any wonder that these apostles who knew this Christ said, we can fix this. We're not perfect, we're not flawless, but we will labor for peace and reconciliation. We will labor for grace because we serve our Savior. Working together with the church, including those who were grumbling and murmuring, by the mercy of God, They devised a plan that was followed so that the name of Christ was honored and the gospel was served in the church as well as outside the assembly. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we come to you as sinners. We come to you as those who fall short of the glory of God by nature. We have our messes, we have our struggles, our trials, our grumbling and murmuring, certainly as sinners and as humans. But I pray, God, that we would be encouraged by this passage. Here is a church where there were such troubles, but they were handled honorably. I pray, God, that you would shatter the idealism that we naturally bring to a church family wanting everyone to line up with our agenda and our ways and for everyone to receive us precisely as we desire and not being happy when it doesn't happen. God, it's in us. It's so natural to us. I pray that we would not match disillusionment with disillusionment, but that we would strive for biblical and faithful decisions. And God, that your cause would be aided that we would be the body of Christ and that we would function in a healthy way, assembly and leadership working together to accomplish what we could not accomplish individually. I pray for this church that the word of God and prayer would ever be at the center and protected 
and honored and encouraged. There would always be a sense that when our leadership is is ministering the word and praying, that they are doing the greatest work. They are flying the plane home. I pray, God, that that realization would be matched by this assembly of people in acts of service, in responsiveness to your calling upon our lives. And I pray, Father, sincerely for anyone that does not know Christ as Savior, that you will teach them what Jesus did in his disillusionment with sinners. Show them the freedom of grace in Christ. Bring them, I pray, to understand the penalty that was paid by Christ and the victory that was won through his resurrection. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.